0: We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel.
1: Ecclesiastes chapter 8 verses 1 to 17. Please turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 8 verses 1 to 17. Again, that's Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verses 1 to 17. Who is like the wise, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command, because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily. The heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous." I said that this also is vanity, and I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun." However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out.
0: Good morning. It's a pleasure to be with you this fine fall morning. Uh, Please allow me to introduce myself for anyone I haven't had the privilege of meeting yet. My name is Adam Sanders. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, If you're visiting with us, especially want to be... Hopefully not the first, but want to extend a welcome to you and uh, truly have been praying for you that uh, as you join us this morning that you would draw near to Jesus from the time you spend uh, with us this morning. Uh, before you leave, I would ask that uh, you take a moment to stop by and see us out in the lobby. We do have more information uh, if you want to know a little bit more about who we are, uh, some of the ways you can get involved here in Emmaus. We'd love to stop and talk with you uh, after the services today. Emmaus members, uh, what a joy to be pastor of this body. Uh, we say it every week because uh, every week we're reminded of it and uh, feel it further to be true. So thank you for all that you do. Uh, quickly would want to uh, introduce a little bit of an elephant in the room maybe. I uh, know these are crazy times so I, I did want to take a moment just to confirm that I do not have COVID or any other uh, sickness like symptoms although you might notice a, a crackling in my voice. But there is a ground zero event that. Uh, has contributed to this, and that is the fact that I am quite a foolish man who uh, did yard work quite a bit this weekend and uh, mulched many leaves without wearing a mask or any kind of throat protection, and so instantly found myself uh, fighting my body trying to get all the dirt and other particles out. So, uh, uh, in all seriousness, if you're sitting towards the back and you find my voice getting quieter and quieter, can't hear me, feel free to give the thumbs up, like, turn it up, Pastor Sanders, and uh, I will uh, do my best to oblige in that regard, so... Uh, With that being said, uh, we got a lot to do this morning. Uh, We have uh, a great passage of scripture to get into, so I want to do that. Uh, Before we do, though, I did want to bring a uh, prayer request slash update to you all uh, for a a dear family that is uh, close to this body. Uh, We'll call them the S-family for uh, security, privacy reasons, but... uh, this is a family that is serving in South Asia right now, and I uh, just wanted to give you guys a little bit of a brief update, something you can be praying for them as we're partnering with them, and ministering with them. Uh, they are settled in for the most part doing well, but uh, they do have a fairly urgent prayer request. Uh, it has been brought to their attention by uh, both believers and non-believers alike in the city where they are, that there's actually a, uh, a person who lives in their apartment complex who has been known to actively seek out and uh, report to Christians and uh, has made it a bit of a personal mission to try to make sure that they are kind of kept away from the people in the city. So uh, very, very, very dark to even think of that. But you guys can be praying for them as they seek wisdom in terms of housing, as they consider whether they need to move or not to another place. And uh, we want to pray for them that that would be uh, something they could have a a smooth transition on and uh, that they could do so quickly. So uh, that's something you guys can be praying for them as we continue to partner with their family, and uh, I would ask that you guys would be lifting them up in that way. So uh, uh, as we turn into the text this morning, though, uh, there's always a weight I feel whenever we preach. Uh, I want to go before the Lord and uh, ask him to bless this time and and use his word in our lives. So let's, let's go before the Lord together. Holy God, we come before you this morning. In the name of Jesus Christ, the only mediator between God and man, Lord, we lift up the name of Jesus. We pray that in everything that we do this morning, Lord, from the songs that we sing to the interactions we have with others to your word proclaimed, uh, Lord, that we just pray that your name would be lifted high, Lord. Lord we pray that your word would do exactly that which it has promised to do, that it would pierce into the hearts of the skeptic and the sinner, Lord, that it would bring back the wayward and the wondering, Lord, that it would edify your body and strengthen your saints. Lord, as we think about your saints, we do want to lift up the S family and just pray for them, Lord. We thank you for their their willingness to go and to serve in proclaiming the gospel. Lord, as we consider they find themselves in a very dark place, where many of the Spiritual powers of dominion and authority have reigned for many, many years, Lord. We pray that the gospel would go forward, Lord. We pray even now for their neighbor, Lord. We ask that, Lord, you would do a supernatural work in this person's life, Lord. We pray that your judgment would come upon them, Lord, they would feel the weight of their sin, they would turn to Christ, Lord. We pray that in the meantime, Lord, that you would give wisdom to our our dear brothers and sisters, Lord, that you would give them wisdom to know what to do. You would not discourage them, Lord, as they have already met opposition, Lord, but you would strengthen within them a resolve uh, of even more clarity of the desperate need of the gospel in this place. And Lord, it would, rather than cause them to cower back in fear, Lord, it would cause them to uh, have a renewed sense of the magnitude of your gospel and its need for the people of all nations. And I pray that you would give them a, a stony resolve to proclaim it boldly and joyfully with wisdom and truth, Lord. Be with us as we come into you. This text today, Lord, edify your saints, bring the lost near, and glorify your name. In your name I pray, amen. Our first verse here, I want to read again, who is like the wise, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. See this morning, friends, this preamble serves as a compass of sorts for us as we begin to make our way through the passage this morning. There are few virtues throughout Scripture that are held in higher esteem than that of wisdom. We see wisdom has the ability to take the wayward, walking towards the path of destruction, and place their feet on a firm foundation. Wisdom has the ability to cause the the cynic and the crass to begin to see the world with childlike wonder yet again. Wisdom can make the scoffer become a worshiper of God. Friends, we know that wisdom is not merely a a learnedness in the study of books, but wisdom characteristically is marked by a fear of God. Wisdom is given to those who know the word of God and do what it says, those who can see the truth in the world full of error. Friends, this is particularly an interesting concept for us as we enter into our passage today, for we see that in this World under the sun, as we continue our study through the book of Ecclesiastes, we see that there are a number of paradoxes that await those who are following after God in this world under the sun. We see it strikingly here as we consider wisdom because there are times when those who are seeking wisdom and seeking to live wisely will appear to be the foolish ones in our worldly economy. While those who are seeking wickedness will appear to be wise. So friends, how do we respond to such a circumstance when we find ourselves in a position where we feel the need to vindicate ourselves, when we've followed after God and done what he's commanded, only to find ourselves being scorned and belittled? Friends, today, Solomon, the word of God and all its wisdom provides us a path forward for joy in the midst of these circumstances. So that's what we're going to be looking at today as we open up the word of God. I want to read for us again verses uh, 2 through 5 as we take a look at our passage today and see what it looks like to apply God's wisdom in a world that is upside down. It says this, I say, keep the king's command because God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence and do not take a stand in an evil cause for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme and who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps the command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. So we see as Solomon is turning our attention to wisdom in this section, he begins by commending a type of wisdom that is committed to obedience to the king of the land. We notice there are several reasons for this. First, we see that Solomon points to this oath from God that a king possesses what does he mean by that? Throughout the scriptures, we're confronted by this reality that there is not a single sovereign sitting on a throne now or at any point in history that has gotten there on their own power and volition. It is the Lord of hosts and the King of kings who places men on thrones, and it is the Lord of hosts and the King of kings who removes them. We see this strikingly in so many ways. One that comes to mind is in the book of Daniel when the King Nebuchadnezzar Literally sits there self-aggrandizing as he looks out upon his kingdom. And then a day later, he finds himself stricken by the Lord to the point where he literally becomes a madman. He crawls out of the palace on all fours and starts eating grass in a field. When people walk by them, he has hair down to his waist, fingernails long, chewing on grass and cud. And yet we see, friends, when he's humbled by this reality, God brings him back to his throne. So, friends, the king carries this oath... And this responsibility ordained by God. And we must acknowledge that this is a generous blessing from the Lord. See, in his great kindness and wisdom, God has given us these different spheres, these different uh, organizations and operations meant to protect us from evil. We see we have the family, the church, and the state. And friends, it is truly a gift to know that God in his kindness has instituted this, for we see that this state carries a primary purpose. We see it in our passage here. To punish evil. Friends, God takes sin and suffering so serious that he has instituted an entity with the responsibility of making sure that those who do evil get their just day and those who are innocent are protected. And friends, this is a glorious and gracious thing. It's one of the reasons why there is no room for uh, anarchy in the Christian faith and life, where we see that God has given us institutions for our good. I would imagine here today in a room full of Christians, it's likely the case that most of you feel this posture already. You have a general disposition that looks to the genuinely good God-given authorities placed in our lives as a gift and as a blessing. However, I feel compelled to just mention this morning that likely for many of us, we've felt attention with that, especially over the last several years, right? Not trying to make commentary on uh, mask mandates or anything of that variety, but when we see videos of pastors being pulled out of churches simply for wanting to open the doors and bring people in, it causes us to pause, right? For many of us, it causes us to ask the question, at what point, as a Christian, is it appropriate to resist these God-appointed authorities? And while friends, this is a very complex subject that I feel is simply not enough time to address in our passage today, nor would it uh, be doable given the other things we need to get to, I did want to take a moment to speak on this for a second. I think it's faithful and appropriate for us as we seek to take commands like Romans 13 to honor and obey our authorities and Ecclesiastes 8 to obey the king. We want to follow these faithfully. And in order to do that, we need to have a robust and well-fleshed-out doctrine of Christian civil dissonance. We need to know where the line is and when it's appropriate to say, we cannot follow you here. And it can't be based on emotion or sentiment or childish or foolish ideology. It has to be rooted in the Word of God and His wisdom. So, friends, with that in mind, I want to offer up two just quick caveats. Like I said, knowing that this is a complex issue that carries with it many, many facets to discuss, but I think these are a couple things that we do well to keep in our mind as we move forward. The first one is this, probably the most easily clarified in our midst today. We know that the Word of God stands supreme as the ultimate source of truth in our society, it is unchanging, and it is the standard by which we live our lives. Anytime we find ourselves in a position where we're being asked by the authorities placed over us to to break the commands of God, whenever we're being told, "Do, do not do that which God has told us to do, or do do that which God has told us not to do, we know that we have an obligation to a higher authority and power. We must resist in those moments because it is a matter of being faithful to God and His commands. The second thing I'd like to put into our mind this morning... Like I said, being painfully aware that there is much more here that needs to be said. But I think it's important for us to try to land this in our context. We live in a nation that has almost nothing resembling of a king or a dynastic leader that stands over us whose word is final in authority. In fact, our country is one that was set up in such a way that our founding fathers did everything possible to try to avoid that being put into one person's hands. What we see as we look across the scope of American civil government is that we have many people who carry genuine offices of authority, of whom we should look to as those that we would submit to and obey, but they have an ultimate authority as well. Yes, the Word of God, certainly, but also an entity known as the Constitution and the rule of law. And so it is, friends, that I would invite you to consider when we're working our way through these questions that challenge us. It is appropriate to remember that even those who have authority over us have a seat under authority to the Constitution and the law. So there will be times when someone who has authority over us might be disobeying their authority in the Constitution. In doing so, they're breaking Romans 13 and Ecclesiastes 8, and we have an obligation as those who are submitting to the king of this land to disobey them so that we might obey our king. And friends, this is important for us to keep in mind. If you want to talk more about this, I'd love to sit down and have that conversation. But as we see throughout this passage, there's a reality that we run into, that the Christian is beholden to walk in the truth, regardless of the optics that come with it. In fact, we're about to see in the very next passage that there are going to be times where the most wicked and vile among us seem to be elevated and praised as those who do good, while those who are doing what is right are seen as the evil and foolish. And so, friends, our standard cannot be based on merely the tides or feelings of one person or a culture, but they have to be anchored in the truth of God's word. I want us to notice that cry and plea from Solomon as we continue on in verses 10 through 13. It says this, when I saw the wicked, they used to go in and out of this holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This is also vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. Friends, this is a a painful reality. Throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, we've seen this word hevel or uh, vanity used oftentimes. In this regard, we have sought as a pastoral team to consistently interpret this as uh, something more like the word fleeting. So this is a reality that is temporary. It points to the temporariness of things. And friends, this is one of those painful temporary realities we see. There are few things more painful than when we see legitimate organizations and institutions like the family, the state, and the church that are meant to uphold good, punish evil, and direct our hearts in wisdom. And yet when we see those institutions become the very things that praise evil, it causes us to panic. Rightfully so, it causes us to stop and pause and feel the weight of it. Friends, we see that this is one of the the curses of living under the sun. It is a very bitter pill to swallow. There are numerous examples we could use here. One that kept replaying through my mind, I was reading this text. Several months ago, I saw a video of a woman standing on a stage receiving an award. And she began in almost a warrior-like cry to raise her fist in defiance and cry out, that my abortion granted me everything that I've gotten today. I would not be here or have this success had I not done it. And friends, my heart sunk in that moment. Not only to hear such a, a wicked statement applauded by our culture and public, but my heart went out to the many dear brothers and sisters in my life that I know who every month have felt the pain, over and over again, of seeing that negative pregnancy test, who have felt the sting of carrying the loss of a miscarriage, for them to feel that pain over and over again, only for someone like that to stand forward and celebrate the murdering of their own child, to garner worldly success, points to realities such as these. Why do the wicked prosper while the righteous suffer? And yet, friends, we're reminded that this mentality does not tell the story. I want us to read verse 11 again. It says, because the sentence of evil or against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of children of man is fully set to do evil. Friends, this points us to a reality that has been painful throughout history. Many Christian pastors in the past have referred to this as something like the deceitfulness of sin, Friends, it's a reality in which we are doing something egregious. It's presuming upon the kindness of God, for we see that God has delayed his punishment for sin. So often we see that God withholds his just and righteous acts of punishing sin. For what reason? To show mercy. God does not come down as hard as he can the immediate moment he could, because he wants to show grace. And yet, friends, what a wicked place to be in when we, as creatures under the sun, see this as a license to sin. Friends, the psalmist refers to this as a fool. He says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. He's not speaking purely of a mental atheism. But he's saying, who's going to stop me? Who's going to punish me for these wicked deeds? Friends, if we're honest... Many of us today might find ourselves falling into similar snares. When we sit on the couch with a close friend and we begin to expel unkind and even venomous words about another person, then we get up and go our separate ways and we realize nothing happened. Or perhaps when we're sitting there on our phones in the quiet of a dark place and begin to look at material that is unpleasing to the Lord, sinful and and vile, And yet we walk out and nothing happens. We can be tempted to be a fool in that moment and believe that there are no consequences for our sins. But friends, this is a dire and desperate mistake. I'm reminded of a man in history by the name of Samson. Perhaps many of you are familiar with him in the book of Judges of the Bible. Uh, Samson's parents desperately prayed for a child and none would come. And yet when God finally graciously granted the desire of their hearts... They committed him to the Lord by having him take a Nazarite vow. For those of you who are unfamiliar with that term, literally what it is is a a covenant to be used by the Lord, and with that comes certain outward symbolic uh, gestures. In this case, there are three. It might seem a little strange to us, but one is that you don't drink wine. One is that you never touch the body of a dead thing. And the other one is that no razor ever comes upon your body. And we see that God in his kindness granted Samson this incredible strength. A strength that is supernatural and goes beyond uh, what we can imagine. Something like what we would see in a modern superhero. And yet what we see in the life of Samson is he is a textbook example of the world's worst Nazarite that ever existed. Samson and his strength quickly became a, a force that other enemies of Israel began to fear because of his immense strength. And yet we see that this man showed very little faith towards the Lord. He found himself drinking alcohol. On one occasion, when fighting the Philistines, of all things he could have done, he decides to grab a donkey's jawbone. The more I think about that, the more I'm like, what purpose did that serve? Other than to defy his Nazarite vow, right? Touching a dead jawbone. And we also see he carried an intense love for promiscuous Gentile women as well. Probably the part of the story that most of you remember, maybe there's a woman named Delilah who is a citizen of the Philistines, one of Israel's enemies at that time. And the sequence occurs in the story where we see that Delilah begins to entice Samson to give up the secret of his strength. Samson, tell me the secret of your strength. And we see that he goes through this several times. Each time he tells a lie, though. He says something like, oh, you have to braid my hair. And yet every night when he does this, he wakes up to the sound of the Philistine army rushing into his room, only to break out, fight them, and defeat them. And yet we see after this continues over and over again, finally Samson relents and he says, the Lord God has granted me strength through my hair. If you cut it, it will go away. And that night, Delilah shaves his head. The Philistine army rushes in. Samson finds that his strength is gone and he's carried away. Ultimately, we see God uses this for his glory and redeems the circumstance, although Samson pays dearly. In fact, he will lose his eyesight and eventually his life for this. And friends, I must confess to you, as a young man hearing this story, and even through most of my adult life, I always just listened to that story and thought, you know, Samson's kind of a dummy. (laughs) Couldn't put two and two together, that Delilah was the one doing it every night, right? He wasn't a very smart guy. But friends, I would submit to you, that's not at all what's going on there. Samson's folly is not that he was too stupid to read the room and understand that Delilah was out to get him. But his folly is he had grown to believe that there were no consequences to his actions. It wasn't that he didn't understand she was going to cut his hair that night. as He believed there would be no punishment if she did. He believed in his heart that there is no consequence for sin. And he paid dearly for it. Friends, I would not be doing my job if I didn't ask you to consider today. Are there any areas in your life where you've grown like Samson, where you've deceived yourself into believing that there are no consequences for sin? You've allowed yourself to be hardened to this reality. Sure, there was guilt associated with it. Maybe there still is. And yet, somewhere deep inside your heart, you believe, nothing's going to happen to me. It's not that big of a deal. Friends, I would implore you today to be reminded of the severity of sin. Sin so egregious that Christ himself, the King of kings and Lord of lords, God himself had to lay down his life to pay for it. Friends, I would implore you if you're a Christian today, you remember that you are delivered from the domain of darkness. You are no longer a slave to that which you hate, but you are free to walk in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Very plainly, we have this reality before us, so act like it. Live as those who are free men and women. If you're here today and you don't know Christ, I would invite you to consider this. The scriptures are clear. That man is inherently rebellious towards the living God who created all things. His standard is perfect. And in this moment, you are walking in rebellion against him in high treason. If that's you here today, do not be deceived by the deceitfulness of sin. Do not think in your heart, well, nothing bad has happened yet, so nothing bad will happen. But fall upon the mercy of God and trust in Christ as your substitute and redeemer. It's God's kindness that you have not received your punishment for walking in disobedience to him. Don't presume upon it. The late great R.C. Sproul has such a powerful example of this. I don't have time to go through it. But he speaks of a, a teacher who graciously extended the deadline on a paper and how the students began to take advantage of that. Until one day the teacher finally said, you all get zeros because it's late. Friends, the day is coming when Christ will rightly judge the deeds of both the wicked and the righteous. So call upon him today and find his mercy. Friends, we notice that even in the midst of such a, a painful reality of the wicked prospering, that there is a day of vindication that's going to come. But the question for us today is, how do we respond here and now? What does it look like to be faithful as we grapple with the maddening reality that sometimes up is called down and down is called up? Solomon, in his wisdom, God in his kindness has given us his word to address that this morning. Let's read that together in verses 14 through 17. It says this, there is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this is also vanity. And I commend joy for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful for this will go with him to his toil through the days of life that God has given him under the sun. And when I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking it, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. So, again, we're reminded of this painful proposition that it is very likely and even happens frequently that those who are wicked may live in light of our current economy as those who are blessed and prosperous, while those who are seeking righteousness may come across as the fool. So how do we respond to this? Friends, it is a painful reality. And I don't want to gloss over and minimize it. Perhaps many of us have found ourselves in these circumstances where the the backlash and the pain of seeking to live righteously has landed like a hammer. Perhaps in those moments where you find yourself seeking to lovingly, Uh, Obey Christ and proclaim the gospel to those who are walking in sin, and yet you come across as the, the fool in the room. And your desperate desire is to vindicate yourself either by going back on God's word and assimilating to the niceties of our culture or to try to argue for yourself. And yet, friends, we have a reminder from Christ that there's something powerful going on here. Think of Jesus' words in the gospel when he reminds us that those who receive praise for their good deeds on earth from man have received their reward in full. And yet those whose good good deeds go unnoticed by carnal men will receive their eternal reward from their heavenly father. Friends, sometimes the suffering in silence, the willingness to do what's right even though you don't receive the proper recognition for it, and even in many cases receive nothing but scorn for, are not the whole story. Friends, there is a vindication coming, both for righteousness and wickedness. So what do we do in the meantime? I'd like to switch now into our pastoral charges as we consider the last few verses of this text, because I think the implications for this are quite clear for us and extremely powerful. Notice again, let's read... Verses 14 and 15. said, there is a vanity that takes place on earth. There are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this is also vanity. And I commend joy for a man. For man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. So what is Solomon saying here? Become naive and say, eh, who cares? Let it burn. Give me a drink and a steak and I'll be fine. Certainly not, right? What Solomon's bringing our attention here is something much, much better. He's calling us not to a, a willful naivety or an unwillingness to see reality as it is in front of us, but he's calling us to look past the current circumstances and see truer realities that await us. He's calling us to contentment in this moment realizing that vindication is coming. And friends, contentment is a powerful agent. The Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs described Christian contentment as the rare jewel of the Christian life. Friends, there are truly few things I can think of that are more able to equip you and arm you to resist temptation of sin, to resist despair in the face of evil, than having a robust and genuine contentment in that which God has given you. Friends, it has a way of helping us to withstand the pain and giving us a perseverance as those who recognize that anything we have tangibly in our hand right now is a gift from God and a trust that he's going to do all that he has promised to do. Friends, think of the emotional and power that comes from having this kind of rock to stand on. As you see others reacting and washing with the waves and the tide of life as we see the hevel of life bringing about both the joys and the sorrows. We see those who are living for the weekend. Monday through Friday might be terrible, but at least Saturday's coming, right? Imagine the joy that comes from true contentment. Imagine the testimony from a person who can look in the face of their suffering and say, the Lord is good. Friends, may we be marked by this posture. I said seeking contentment for a reason. It's not something we settle back into, right? If we simply sit ourselves back and recline and let the world come at us, contentment is not the natural posture we will receive, right? This is a spirit-wrought gift from the Lord that we must pursue. By remembering promises like this, by committing to seek God at his word and say, this doesn't make sense to me right now, but I'm going to trust that all of your promises are true. I'm going to trust that you will do exactly what you said you will do. And in the meantime, I will enjoy the good things from your hand. Friends, secondly, I want to charge us along this line to trust in God's sovereignty. This is our second charge from this passage today. Trust that God is good and his sovereign plans are for our good. Friends, this can be a maddening experience Solomon points to this reality in the text, right? He says, I see man seeking out wisdom everywhere that he may look for it. He's trying to find the rhyme or the reason. Why is all this happening? He's trying to put it all together in a way that atomically makes sense in the moment. But friends, what Solomon reminds us is that we are not God. We are finite. And we cannot understand fully what is happening in a fallen world when we see the circumstances surrounding us. And yet we have to trust that God is good and that what he's doing matters and is for our good. We have reminders of this in the book of Romans, that God is working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. I told myself when I practiced this morning I wasn't going to give this analogy, but here I am going to do it. Ladies, many of you, uh, I'll throw myself in here too, not just you under the bus, love the Hallmark Christians. Christmas movies for this reason. You know what I'm talking about when I say that there's the moment in every story where something happens, where the main character's intentions are misconstrued, right? They're seen to be a wicked person or bad for whatever reason, selfish, insensitive, all of these things, and it introduces the tension of the story, right? But what always happens at the end? The moment of vindication where we find that all of their intentions were good, they were seeking to do the right thing, and they're stored together again, right? Friends, if we can trust the writers of Hallmark to vindicate the characters, how much more should we trust the Lord God of the universe that even though we do not understand his intention? This is why I was going to write that out. <laughs> I remember now. <laughs> how much more, though, can we trust God that he will vindicate his people? that the story he is writing will bring about our good. Friends, for many of us, we can think back to times in our life where we desperately wanted something. We sought it and prayed for it. We, We put our time and our heart and attention into drawing near to it, and yet we found that God gave us a no to it. How many of us in this room can think back now with the benefit of time and wisdom on your side and say with with genuine reflection that God was kind to say no to you in that season? You can see now with retrospect on your side that God was doing something gracious and and denying what you thought you wanted in the moment because he had something better for you. Likewise, probably for many of us, we can see numerous examples where those who got exactly what they wanted find themselves empty with it. How many testimonies of those who have ascended to the peak platforms of finances and reputation who only find themselves looking around and saying, what else is there? It's empty up here. And so friends, I remind you that we have to trust the Lord in these moments. Speaking personally for myself, I know that one of the greatest trials that I've faced in my life, one that I would not wish upon anybody nor would I probably sign up to do it a second time. And yet, what I see that genuinely in his kindness, God has done many, many faithful things through. I can generally reflect back and say that I would not have met my wife, have my three beautiful children, perhaps maybe not even be pursuing the ministry, if not for God's chastisement in that season. And so I I beg you guys to allow God's no and even God's yeses, to be moments that drive us to humility, to trust in him, and to see that he is up to something good. We can fall back on that in both the good and the bad times. Finally, I want to appeal to those in the room who are currently walking in disobedience. Currently, you would admit that you do not know Christ, nor have you submitted to his word or his reign. Perhaps you might be in one of two circumstances. Maybe you have found the weight of life crushing to you, or perhaps maybe you have found that if life was a game, you'd be the winner. Things are going well. But I want to speak clearly to you today and humbly remind you that the truth of Scripture has been presented plainly before us today, that God will not be mocked. And even though this season might appear to be one. celebration and victory for you, a day of vindication is coming where the evil deeds of all those in rebellion against the Lord will be punished. We see this in the scriptures in 1 Corinthians 6.11. The apostle Paul chastises the Corinthian church. He says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor sodomites nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. If you're here today and you have not trusted Christ, plainly, I must tell you that this is your lot. You are an enemy of the God of the universe. You will not inherit his kingdom. But Friends, I want to point to the beauty of this passage that Paul continues on. He reminds this church, he says this, and such were some of you, But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit of our God. Friends, this is the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus Christ has taken his enemies and he has made them his children and his brothers. Jesus Christ has taken those who once walked in rebellion against him and has drawn them near as blessed friends. And so friends, this can be your reality today. You can walk out of this room with a pure conscience before the Lord and a clean heart knowing that your sins have been forgiven. So I beg you today to consider Jesus. Cry out to him. Do not presume upon his kindness. Friends, he has not punished sin in this season as a mercy to you, so that you might be drawn near to him. Don't wait, but come to Christ today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it comes to us when we need it, where we need it. We thank you that it is able to penetrate. Our stony hearts remind us of our desperate need for you. Lord, we thank you that in your great mercy and kindness, you have stalled your wrath. You have withheld the proper punishment for sin. And Lord, you have graciously sent Christ and drawn us near. You have left the window open so that we might be drawn near rather than receive our just punishment for sin. Lord, we praise you for this. Lord, I pray that there's anyone today walking in rebellion, Lord, that their hearts would be convicted of this reality in no way that my mere words could do, Lord, but the reality of the gospel would fall fresh upon them, that they would see you as good and real and true. They would be drawn near this morning. Lord, do this for us even now as we go forth. Send us out from this place as those who are committed to living wisely with a fear of you in our hearts and a trust in the truth that you are good. And Lord, that we can be content with where you've placed us now because you have promised to make all things right. And in the meantime, we can trust that you are bringing glory to your name and bringing good to us as you wait. Lord, it's your name I pray. Amen. Well, friends, every week at Emmaus we end the same way. It's always a joy to come to the communion table because we're reminded in the scriptures that this is a, a declarative action. It's not simply a passive moment where we're... Uh, Receiving things, although that is true, but we're also declaring something. We're being reminded in this moment. Jesus Christ is strengthening us in this moment with his blood and his body, reminding of the gospel applied in our lives. So I would ask you guys, you come forward to be reminded of these things, to praise Jesus Christ and to find yourself uh, convicted and overwhelmed with joy to be proclaimers of the gospel. Here in just a moment, we're going to stand from the front row and come forward. Uh, to my left, your right. Uh, I would say if you are in the category of those who don't know Christ today, we're so glad you're here. I know there have been some hard truth proclaimed. Uh, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to dress like Mr. Rogers today. So when I said harsh things, it would be balanced out by a nice disposition. So uh, I promise it's come out of love and a genuine desire to see you thrive in Christ. So... We would ask in this moment, though, as we're getting up and coming forward, that you would stay in your seats, that you would not feel pressured to get up. We would invite you not to. We'd ask you not to. Instead, though, we would ask you to consider Christ this morning. Consider the joy that he and his kindness has withheld punishment so that he might extend grace and mercy. See, as these men and women come forward to declare this in their action of taking this meal, men and women from all walks of life, literally uh, everything from from doctors, entrepreneurs, teachers, uh, all of these in between, people from different walks of life who've been united together under this bond that Christ crucified, our redeemer and savior has drawn us near into his family. So we walk together with each other. Uh, We invite you to join us. I invite you to consider asking myself. I'll be at the front and then outside here after the services to come talk to me uh, if you have any more questions about Christ. Family, I love you. Your savior is powerful to save. Let's celebrate that as we come forward and take this meal.
1: Thank you for listening to audio from Amaze KC, located in Kansas City. For more information about Amaze KC, please visit us online at www.amazekc.com.